Cool. So this morning, uh, we're going to be watching two clips. Um, and these are uh, done by a guy called Lex. Many of you would, have, would know Lex quite well. Um, but he leads one of the congregations of a church called Jubilee in Cape Town. And uh, he's really a fathering voice that speaks into the life of One Hope. Uh, speaks life into it and, and wisdom and someone that we look to uh, quite often as one of these kind of fathering voices. So I want you to almost to have that in mind as he speaks to us this morning um, of his position and his link to One Hope. Um, and before we watch this, this first uh, clip is going to be entitled Why Membership? So it's kind of a biblical perspective of showing God's heart and God's plan for why he's called believers to be involved and be partnered in kind of local churches. Before we watch that, I was just reminded in preparing for this morning of a passage in Ephesians 3, uh, verse 10, which has always stunned me because it's kind of like Paul is giving this grand perspective of the purpose of the church, the purpose that God has for his church. So I'm going to read it for us quickly. It says, God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So as we kind of sit and listen to kind of like this, this uh, biblical perspective of membership, I almost feel like God wants us to lift our heads and say, look at the grand vision that God has for the church. Like think about that text, that God wants the church, us, you, me, to be this like screen upon which he displays his manifold wisdom. And the text speaks about how he displays it not only to the world, but to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Like angels are looking down at the church and saying, wow, God is wise. Look what he's doing through the church. So I want to stir our hearts in that and help us to have some of that perspective in saying membership is important because it's us being intentionally and meaningfully grafted in to the story of what God is doing. So Michael Eaton, uh, commenting on that, says, The function of the church is to be the screen on which the amazing, varied wisdom of God is displayed. And as I read that, something in my heart wants to say, like, I want to be a part of that. And I want to encourage you to, like, lean in, like, yes, I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of displaying God's wisdom to Uh, the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. And part of that is joining arms together and becoming a member of a local church. So let's, uh, Devin, if you can play the video. Why should you become a member formally of a local church? That's what I want to look at. Five compelling reasons why you should formally join a local church and maybe think about coming to the first night of our exploring membership. Number one, because Christianity creates community. Follow me, said Jesus, that's an individual call, correct? But what that meant was join this group of others who are also following me. When Jesus said to someone, follow me, it, it, it immediately implied following this ragtaggle bunch of others who are also following him. The call to be born again is for every individual, but it meant walking together with that cluster of disciples who were also following Jesus. It means joining a group of followers who have also been called out of their sins and out of their previous 
beliefs. No one said, oh, how wonderful. Jesus has called me to follow him. So I'll just stay in my tax collecting booth or I'll stay in my boat as I was. They joined together in following after him. And so community gets created. When Peter got up on the day of Pentecost and preached Christ to the crowd, we read that those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church. So community is created. It's not only about attending on a Sunday morning. Uh, Why membership? Because Christianity creates community. And that's important in this age of multiple organizations. There are lots of different churches. And without a deliberate joining to a particular community, you'll be unsure if you belong. And of course, the community will be unsure if you belong. So that's the first reason. Christianity creates community. Secondly, because the community needs shepherds. Now, this is a not very popular image of yourself and myself, but the image of a believer as a sheep and of uh, the Lord as the shepherd is repeated in both Old and New Testaments. We're not created to live independent lives, but the sheep analogy is humbling and also slightly humorous as well because if you think about it even though you're very intelligent and you earn lots of money or whatever it is that you look wonderful um, actually you are prone to fall into ditches and get stuck in hedges and all the rest of it left to themselves sheep get lost and there may have been a, a lamb that thought I'm powerful I can do this but as soon as a wolf comes along reality kicks in so we come to the great shepherd of the sheep the Lord Jesus Christ himself And, of course, this analogy of sheep and shepherds is carried over into a description of church leadership. It's not leaders lording it over the people and controlling everything that they do, but it's servant leaders, shepherds, guiding and leading the flock. So we read things like, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers be shepherds of the church of God which he brought with his own blood the church doesn't belong to the elders to the leaders to the pastors the church belongs to Jesus Christ and the shepherds are accountable to him and to the people and to one another for how they serve and lead much more could be said about that but so why membership because Christianity creates community because the community needs shepherds thirdly because we need each other We need each other. What Paul is describing in the church, he says, Jesus Christ is the head and the church is his body. Gifts have been given to help the body mature. We've experienced something of those gifts even this morning. So the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work, Ephesians 4 says. So there's an interconnectedness When you become a Christian, we are knit together, we are joined together, we need each other. That's impossible if your view is to hop from church to church to church, grabbing a little bit there, grabbing a great sermon off the internet here, and whatever. The New Testament describes the church as believers who are joined together. C.S. Lewis makes the case that the very notion of membership actually comes from the New Testament 
even though we're used to, you know, gym membership and membership of this and that and the other, C.S. Lewis says, no, 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 actually, it begins with the, the idea of Christ being the head and the church being members of one another. And the New Testament has so many one anothering verses, it's impossible to see how these could benefit you if you're staying on the edges of a number of different church communities. These verses smash through individualism and our self kind of focus and promote the reality of support and encouragement um, and human flourishing that is sustained by being joined together in the life of the church. So we're told to, for example, love one another, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, instruct one another, serve one another in love, carry each other's burdens, admonish one another, encourage one another daily, confess your sins to one another, pray for each other, love one another deeply from the heart, offer hospitality to one another. And that's only a small sample of, I think there are more than 30 Verses like that in the New Testament. And it's not just that you have needs, it's also that others have needs and you can serve others too. So it's a two-way thing. Why should you become a member? Christianity creates community. Community needs shepherds. We need each other. Fourthly, just two more, because Jesus is building his church. Jesus is building the church The church, of course, consists of the universal church, that is, all those who are genuinely converted to Christ, including all living Christians and those who have gone before us. But the church is also described as specifically local. So in the New Testament, you get glimpses of a glorious future church, the bride of Christ, the city of God coming down out of heaven. But you also get letters written to individual local churches with elders, deacons in specific locations that are wrestling with issues, you know, relevant to where they're, where, where they're at. Jesus said, if there's a sin or an offense, we approach the individual, then we take, a, take along someone else to get further wisdom. And if they still don't listen, we bring the issue to the church. That's not about the universal church, that's to a local congregation. That can only mean a specific local church. So while it's true that when you were born again, you joined, you became part of the global people of God and literature written 200 years ago is like bitingly relevant for your Christian life now and all of that. Actually, the biblical norm is that you also become a part of a local church. There's no exception to that rule in the, in the New Testament at all. So there might be a short season where you're, you've maybe relocated, you've moved to Cape Town, or you're looking around, but for your own good and for the good of those who you could be serving, you need to join a local church. Um, another way of looking at it is what should I be investing in? You know, what is Jesus building? What will outlast corporations, companies, ideologies, isms? It's the church. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So why membership? Christianity creates community. Community needs shepherds. We need each other. And the church is what Jesus is actually building. I mean, that's why we're here. Finally, fifthly, because the world needs help. The world needs help. And they don't think, (laughs) the world does not think the church is where they're going to get help. But the world needs help and the world needs hope. And this particular point grabs me because the church, you and I, carry the message of truth about Christ 
and about eternity into our world. And I often think, you know, where was the church when I was in darkness? I mean, where were you guys? Well, some of you weren't born, frankly. But, you know, where was the church? Where was the church when I was wading through my sins and error and nonsense and trying to fashion out how a person should be? Where was the church? Where's the voice crying out in the wilderness? Behold, you know, this is your God. Where's the church declaring it's Jesus? He's the answer. He is the way and the truth and the life. You need to become part of a community that we might proclaim Christ. God's determination to reconcile the world to himself in Christ is advanced through planting and building healthy local churches. Every church is like a well that's been opened up and can bring health and life and, you know, a, a, a garden, a field, a harvest, even in a desert. That's what a church is. It's like an, and then that's what this, this story is. This was a blocked up well with numbers receding, with no one coming, very few people coming. And by the grace of God, the well that was here, this so could easily have been taken over by, by construction companies and property developers and become a very fancy you know, block of apartments that none, very few of us could afford to purchase right here in the very center of town. But God unblocked the well. The gospel is flowing. Christ is being preached. The presence of God is being experienced. And people are coming. Jesus is building his church. And we want to get in on that because the world definitely, you know, this needs help. So why consider church membership? Because Christianity creates community. It goes beyond our gathering on a Sunday. And that community needs shepherds. And we need each other. Jesus is building his church. And the jolly world outside needs help. They need us. They need the message of the gospel. So please take that exhortation seriously. If you're not yet a member, if you're just visiting, it's fine. Go become part of the church that you're in. You know, what are you doing here? It's fine, but you know, let's think about it. But if you're not yet a member of a church or if you're in between or you've relocated, can I encourage you? Maybe join us on the 1st of March. Find out more about the particularities of who we are and see if membership's for you. Amen? Um, so you'll see that he obviously mentioned the dates that are applicable to his church, but ours are obviously different. Um, the second clip we're going to be watching is he's just kind of giving, uh, describing baptism for us in a biblical perspective of baptism. And as I was thinking about this, I think there's quite a significant link between membership and baptism, and that is because obviously baptism is a, a symbol of our union with Christ as we kind of like symbolize, you know, kind of dying to our old self and being raised to new life uh, through baptism. But at the same time, it's also a powerful symbol of our union with the people of God and the body of Christ and in some ways replaces some of the imagery and symbolism of, of circumcision in the Old Testament, that it's a sign and a symbol that we are united um, in the people of God. As you know, week by week, 
interspersed with breaking bread and so on, we're looking at certain kind of core values. We've looked at why life groups, we've looked at why church membership. I want to take a few moments to look at why baptism, why believers' baptism. So I'm going to take between 10 and 12 minutes to do this. And if I go over 12 minutes, you can throw bits of paper at me or something like that. So, the New Testament gives us two Christian symbols. Breaking bread and baptism in water. And those symbols are not given to those who are not yet Christian. They are given to those who are already Christian. We know what we are to offer those who are not yet Christian, and that's the gospel message. We want to preach Christ, who he is, what he accomplished through his death and his resurrection. That's our gift, our best gift to the non-believer. But once that person repents and believes in Christ, uh, they will grow in a relationship with him. They will likewise be given these two symbols, baptism and um, breaking of bread. So the first symbol, baptism in water, uh, is a one-time symbolic action. The second symbol, breaking of bread or taking communion, however you've phrased it, is a repeated symbolic action. So because baptism in water is a requirement of all followers of Christ, it's worth just thinking this through carefully. One of the great dangers of religion, of course, is that people accept or defend or reject religious tradition without actually reading through scripture, let alone thinking through the application to their own lives. Christianity ought to enliven the mind. Real Christianity awakens the intellect. It doesn't dull the intellect down. We're told that we're to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So we're to love God with our mind. So it's a normal practice in the New Testament that those who decide to follow Christ get baptized. It symbolizes a fresh beginning, a transition from the old, and a taking up of the new. It indicates a major life change moment, and it's a declaration of allegiance to Christ. It's a symbol of the total you being totally washed free from guilt and emerging into a new life. And even Jesus obediently submitted to baptism, even though he didn't need to because he'd never been a sinner, uh, therefore didn't need to, it didn't require this symbol of washing and new allegiance. He'd never lost the allegiance to God in the first place. But that simple obedience of Jesus, if you remember the story, caused God the Father to rip open the heavens and declare, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Obedience pleases the Father. So why get baptized? One, Jesus commanded the first disciples to preach and baptize those who believed. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So as long as the Christian church is preaching the gospel and people are being converted, we will be baptizing until the Lord returns. At a fundamental level, it just simply reflects your obedience to Christ as a disciple. We go, we preach, people repent, they are to be baptized. Secondly, 
It's the normal Christian entry procedure, if you like. This, in other words, this is exactly what the early church did. The process isn't difficult to see. It's right there. Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2. The people heard the gospel. The people understood the gospel. They were convinced of its truth. And they cried out, you remember, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Notice the order. Repent and then be baptized. We read those who accepted his message were baptized. So it's quite clear. Philip and the Ethiopian in Acts chapter 8, same thing. The Ethiopian hears, he understands, he believes, and after, be, after believing, he gets baptized. In fact, he even said, look, there's water. So somehow Philip had even included the message of baptism into the message of the gospel that he preached to the Ethiopian, because when they passed some water, he said, look, what, what forbids me for being baptized? And Philip went and plunged him into the water and up out of the water. Paul, to the businesswoman, Lydia, to the jailer, to those who were with him, uh, and in Corinth, exactly the same process through the book of Acts. They first heard, then they believed, and then they were baptized. And that's what's being described. In those passages, no one is baptized who hasn't first heard, and then believed, and then voluntarily submitted to baptism. That's explicit in every example. So it's the normal way in to the Christian life. You hear, you believe, you get baptized. Thirdly, why get baptized? Because of what it symbolizes. And there are three kind of key elements to this. As I already mentioned, it symbolizes death and resurrection. That is the old you. Some of you can remember the old you that spent so much time sinning has gone forever. The old you has died and a new you in Christ has come into being. That's a wonderful truth. There's a new you that's come into being. So baptism is a physical picture. Death being buried, going down into the water. Resurrection coming up, emerging up out of the water. It's a picture physically of what's already happened spiritually in your life. It's not some magic superstitious, you know, you know, ritual where, which confers something onto you, it's a symbol of a change that's already happened. Jesus, you remember, called conversion being born again. Paul describes it as becoming a new creation. And baptism symbolizes death and resurrection. And that's why it's such a celebration whenever we see folk getting baptized, because it's the death of the old life, of the dark life, of the sinful life, And it's the beginning of the new one. And then secondly, because of what it symbolizes, it symbolizes being washed from sin. Ananias said to Paul, brother, receive your sight and now get up. Remember, Paul has met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He's been blinded. It's a massive experience. He is three days praying and fasting. Ananias preaches the gospel to him, prays for him, says, get up be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. Now, your sins aren't actually washed away by the water, but once again, the total you is being totally washed. That's what baptism symbolizes. And then lastly, it symbolizes that you've been joined to Christ and to the church, his body. You were baptized, Paul says in Galatians 3, you were baptized into Christ. So it's a spiritual joining For you were all baptized by one spirit into one body. 
It's not the physical act that does that, but the act illustrates the real spiritual thing that has happened in your life. You've been, through Christ, you've been joined to this new body. You've been baptized into Christ, and baptism illustrates that. So that's why. When? When should you get baptized? Good question. When? Well, clearly, after you've become a believer in Christ. So baptism doesn't convert you, so it never happens before conversion in the New Testament. You don't get into the family of God by being born into a Christian family. At some point, you need to make, and you've needed to make, your own decision to follow Christ, and then you get baptized. There is never an instance in the New Testament of an unconverted person being baptized in the name of Jesus before they voluntarily put their trust in Jesus. It just doesn't exist. The only instance of an unconverted person being baptized is an illustration of deception. And that person, Simon Magus, if you've read the book of Acts, he is rebuked soundly by Peter, who doesn't consider him to be a Christian. Peter says, may your money perish with you. So clearly, Simon Magus was not a Christian, even though they'd missed it and he'd got baptized. So there's no legitimate instance of Christian baptism, baptism in the name of Jesus, before conversion in the New Testament. There just isn't one. Added to the biblical examples I've already (coughs) cited, Mark 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Acts 8, when they believed Philip and he preached the good news, they were baptized. Acts 18, many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. So in the New Testament, baptism follows a believer's confession of Christ as their Lord. In fact, it is part of their own voluntary confession of Christ before the world. It is an act of obedience, but it's also a declaration of your allegiance to Christ. That's why we like to baptize people publicly rather than, you know, at home in the bath, you know, just on their own or something. It's a declaration of allegiance. It's also like a communal moment of celebration, which is a wonderful thing as well. The tradition of baptizing babies has to be forced onto those scriptures because there are literally no examples of it ever having taken place in biblical times. There are also no historical references to the baptism of infants until the third century into church history. So the first reference, and it's not about the baptism of babies, but the first reference is Tertullian, who in the third century argued this. This is the first reference, that the children of believers should wait until they are old enough to fully understand what baptism represents. That is the earliest reference to the baptizing of children or infants in history. And it's in the third century. And Tertullian, one of the church fathers, is saying, hey, don't baptize your children too early. Wait until they understand what the gospel is and what being baptized actually means. Nevertheless, while church fathers and scripture didn't promote it, over the centuries, not only children, but then later on, the baptism of babies became a regular rite of passage. And we imagine it's because of plague and sickness and this sense that, you know, well, let's just get them baptized and then whatever happens, at least we'll know they're safe. You can understand that, but it's not something that's come from Scripture, and it wasn't something, alas, 
that was dealt with at the Reformation. It should have been, but it wasn't. And so the Catholic practice and the other older church traditions still practice the baptism of babies. But that doesn't mean it's something we need to get heated about or separate over. And it's also something that, you know, you may be on a journey in as well, but we're trying to look at what Scripture says. It has affected our language. In 1611, when the King James Version of the Bible was printed in English, and it was based on the 1534 translation of Tyndale's New Testament, largely, I mean, about 70% of the King James Version is Tyndale, they bottled, they bottled, that's an English phrase, they chickened out that instead of translating the word baptism as immerse, which is what it means, they, they created a new English word. They transliterated the Greek word baptism into the, word, the English word baptism. And so they didn't actually, because the sprinkling of infants and babies was so widespread, they bottled it and they just went for baptism. So while there was resistance, though, at the Reformation, the Anabaptists are famous protestant grouping there was resistance but the practice continued and some scholars have sought to justify the practice by kind of crowbarring old testament ideas into the new testament to try and justify it Um, however many church traditions denominations millions of christian families don't baptize their newborns preferring to let the child or the young adult choose for themselves to become a follower of Christ before being baptized. And, of course, many who have been christened, when they become believers and understand the scriptures, want to be baptized. Now, I wasn't christened. I was baptized as a baby because (laughs) my father's Greek, and they baptized me in the Greek Orthodox Church, and the Greeks know Greek. So they didn't sprinkle me. They immersed me. That's why the Greek Orthodox Churches, they take the babies... Can you believe it? And and up again out of the the water. Um, So I was technically baptized as a baby. But when I became a Christian and saw saw the scriptures, it's just a matter of obedience for me. It was like, oh no, how how could that be anything? I am now, I'm not, they they didn't rubbish John's baptism. So the baptism of John the Baptist was a baptism for repentance. It wasn't Christian baptism. So some of them had been baptized already in John's baptism of repentance, but they needed to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit later on. Um, Just one very quick thing. You're not baptized into a denomination, but into Christ. So if you've been baptized into a church, I don't know how that works, but that does sometimes happen, then maybe you need to think about being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, you don't need to be baptized again, though, if you were genuinely baptized as a believer before joining Jubilee. You don't need to be re-baptized. If you know you've been baptized as a believer since you've started following Christ, you don't need to be re-baptized. And then my last one was, how should I be baptized? But I think I've already explained what the word means. We, we want to try and follow scripture above all. We want to put scripture as the primary authority, and that's really why we're talking through some of these why things. Cool. Can I pray for us? Father, we thank you that your word is alive, that it speaks to us. Father God, I want to ask that as we've just been hearing about why membership, why baptism, that you would have been stirring something in our hearts that we would be um, 
in, in part that we would just want to commit to partnering with a local church. It doesn't have to be one hope, but just be, just be meaningfully partnering with a church and a church that we can kind of just run hard together and co-labor with and soldier with uh, for the mission that you have and, the, and the, the desires that you have for your church, King. And I also want to pray for those of us who have not been baptized here. Father, I want to ask that you would um, just spur in them a desire to be baptized, that they might step out in obedience. Father, and I, I thank you for the beautiful gift of baptism and, and, and just this powerful symbol that we get to enact of what has happened spiritually in our hearts, that you've brought us out of death and into life, that you've adopted us as foreigners, you've brought us into your family and that you're joining us and uniting us to kind of like the greater body of the church. And we thank you for that, Father. And I also want to ask that as we celebrate communion now, that this is also just such a powerful symbol that you've left with us, this very kind of physical symbol of remembering what you've done for us. In your name, King. Amen. Cool. So we're going to um, take communion. Um, just, uh, yeah, uh, I think I encourage you to do it kind of in like smaller groups, three or four people. Um, and... The primary purpose of communion, as Jesus tells us, is to remember. In uh, Luke 22, verse 19, it's, it says, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Um, so as we take that, we actually take communion basically every week. And I think it's just such a powerful moment of kind of like reorientating however our week's gone and just like re-envisioning ourselves and taking a moment to ponder and remember what Jesus has done for us on the cross. So you guys can go get the elements and then take them in small groups.